All right. Good morning, everybody. So good to see your faces today. Uh, just wanted to say, so glad to be back. Do you know that God doesn't have a lot of needs? I mean, there's not a lot of things we can do for him. But this morning, we can fulfill the desire that he has for worshipers in spirit and truth. I mean, the one thing God cannot do is exalt himself the way he deserves. He, res he requires an entourage. He requires a following. He requires a citizenry. If he is the king, that kingship, that, that rulership on earth is reflected in those who respond to who he is. And this morning we have a privilege and an opportunity to do that. It's so great. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Father, empower us to do this in increasingly glorious ways. Can you say amen? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever walked into a room or part of a city and found it to be suddenly heavy or dark? If you ever walked into a place or driven through a place where like it suddenly got light, you felt like there was hope in the air? That's because spiritual atmospheres are as real as climactic atmospheres. You know, you don't, you don't land in the Philippines and get out of the plane and wonder where all that heat came from. You know it's a byproduct of circumstances that are kind of automatic. I mean, they're just, they're just part of the atmosphere. And you know the factors that contribute to that atmosphere. Well, the same thing goes for hope in a city. The atmosphere of hope in a city comes from a place. When it's not there, it's because nobody's providing it. And when it is there, it's because somebody opened a door. The church is a door to a world of hope and a world of possibilities. That's what this is about. And this morning as we've been worshiping God, you can feel the elevation. You can feel the intensity. You can feel the gradual engagement as we are being made aware of, a, of an atmosphere, of a realm, of a world that's suddenly becoming preeminent in the room. It's not by accident. It's what happens every time we worship. We become conscious of something that we could be conscious of all the time. And then we begin to interact with it. This is just a reminder for what could happen on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every other day of your life because you are a climate changer. You have the ability to create and bring atmosphere to your world. In fact, that's your duty. That's your calling. That's the authority that is, has been given you. So, Father, we say, help us do that today in Jesus name actually Casey come and give that word now Casey has a little word and uh, I was gonna do it later a little word a little word from a little guy I think Mark's saying that we're atmosphere activists amen yeah. look I heard the Spirit of a God speak this morning around dreams I heard the Spirit of God say there have been dreams that have been delayed and dreams that have been dropped. 
I saw the Spirit of God come in to your dream and blow on your dream that has been dropped and delayed. I saw the Spirit of God pick up a dream that he put in your heart 10, 20 years ago, and he began to blow on it. We're on a season of open doors, and I'm prophesying that there's an open door for your dream. You're going to come into your dream in this season in Jesus' name. The devil said in the garden to Adam and Eve, did God really say, and that's one of the things that we can struggle with in our walk in faith with God, did God really say, I'm here this morning to say, God is canceling the word of the devil, did God really say, God did say, and God will perform his dream in your life. I hear the Spirit of God saying, you are a dream catcher, receive the dream of the Lord, amen? Amen. Amen. Well, it, uh, it's so good to be back. And let me just say something about the, uh, the dance. I remember, you know, how long ago did I come here? Like 22 years ago? Uh, it was still controversial, the dance, you know. And there's always, there's always something you can nitpick at. And, and the religious spirit is so good at, at demanding perfection up front, that's what the religious spirit does. It demands per perfection. Uh, and so there's never freedom given. I mean, imagine if you, if you raised your kids that way where you said to them, okay, I'm going to let you play hockey, but if you don't do it well, then you can't do it at all. <laughs> How's that going to go? You know, our kids would still be in their cribs because we would not have permitted them to do anything. And... In that, you have a picture of the, of the shackling of the church, where you're not allowed to do anything unless you do it perfectly and in a way that doesn't offend anybody. Well, good luck with that. You'll never do anything. And, uh, and so, you know what? We're stumbling our way through some of these things. We don't know how to do it well. We're supposed to be led of the Spirit of God but, you know, there's no manual in the scripture for how to do that. There's no step one. You know, where's step one of being led by the Spirit in the Bible? It's not there. So how do you find it? You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling because you got some critics behind you telling you how, how you did it wrong and how offensive that is and, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> so we break that off in Jesus' name. And we're going to stumble our way into obedience and do what God's called us to do. Amen? A few days ago, I was impressed by the idea of becoming the friend of God. It's not a new theme, probably something we've heard, we've talked about, we've noticed in Scripture. And maybe we imagine ourselves to be a friend of God. I'm not going to decide for you, uh, but I will set up the idea here biblically that there is a criteria for being the friend of God. And, you know, uh, some of us are kind of like those kids in the play, play place at McDonald's. We come run, running back to them, Mom, I, I just made a new friend. He's my best friend. Well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, there, there is a criteria for being the friend of God. And, uh, and I was gripped by that the other day. I was gripped by the idea that God has a desire. That when God said, let us make man 
in our image, it wasn't whimsical, it wasn't without design or purpose that there was a very good reason why he was doing it, and it wasn't because he was bored. It wasn't because, well, let's do something different today. I mean, he could have made angels, right? He could have made other, another class of being that was beholden. Now, even with that, though, obviously angels are not implicitly built to obey because we saw that some did not, right? In fact, there's, there's potentially been a, a series of revolts in heaven. The angels who did not keep their, their initial state, well, they did what they weren't supposed to do. Lucifer, who became corrupted by his wisdom, by his, uh, by his own beauty, beholding himself in a mirror, I guess, uh, looking in the mirror too much, he became, he became warped and uh, imagined himself to be something he could not be. And so, and so even the beings of heaven that we see as so nobly given to obedience, they have options. But maybe none so wild as the options that were given to humanity. <laughs> and clearly, we've not fared well. But, but God is longing for something. And uh, I, might, I might be stepping into this prematurely, but I want to tell you the heart of what I felt. And it comes out of some years of experience. You know, there, there are things that dawn on you with great weight in a moment, but you realize there's been a trickle of, of you know, intimations because the truth is you can't understand this. And so I'm going to give you a shadow of this and you... You see that and you sense, get a sense of this idea of the, being the, the desire that's in God's heart, but it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it, I feel like for my own life, and I, I want you to catch this, that there is a longing in the heart of God that only you can satisfy. That none of the angels, none of the splendor of the uh, uh, amazing things that play out in, in, the, in the throne room of God, none of those things can, are equal to what God has made you capable of providing for him. I mean, all of these other beings are lesser in glory. And, and so when David was writing about this, he said, you have made him a little lower than, and it's translated angel, the angels, but it's actually the word Elohim that we were made a little lower than God. I mean, this is why Satan hates us so much because not only was he demoted, but we were given a place above his previous place. I mean, we are seated with him. This is, we are being privileged, thrones and dominions. and I mean, positions of unprecedented authority are being given to mankind. And for a perfect being like Lucifer, this was an affront and continues to be vexing to him. But what is it, though, that God is really longing? When God imagines you and how this is meant to play out for your life, what does he imagine? And then secondly, are you living up to that demand? Are you living up to that desire? Are you fulfilling the possibilities for which you were created? 
I'm not talking about your service in the body of Christ and all of the things we're called to do, whether it's a fivefold ministry or an administrator or a giver or, or, or you know, somebody who is evangelistic. I'm not talking about those things. I'm saying this, that the heart of God made you before he made you for service here on the earth. He made you for service in heaven. Service in eternity. What does that look like and how do I align into that? How do I become that participant in this glorious plan in the fullest way possible? Because the reality of what we're going to see when we stand before him in judgment day is that everything will be made clear and we're gonna realize whether or not we have lived up to the stated purposes for which we were made. And so uh, this, this thing uh, is the rarest and most elusive privilege that has ever, or opportunity that has ever been afforded us to be the friend of God. There's nothing like it. But I want to say this to you up front. Not very many make the cut. Not very many make the cut. And that's not a, that's not a thing to be ashamed about. It's not a thing to be condemned about. But it is a thing to consider, right? Yeah. Now, how does, this, how does this play out? Let me give you a little picture. A few years ago, I was listening to an Australian businessman. And he was talking about the unique um, nature of his life. And he was, you know, he had a storied existence. He's brilliant, uh, extremely wealthy, knowledgeable on a global scale. And, and he was talking about how alone he felt in that because he could not find very many people that he could relate to in the tier of his expertise. You know, when it, if you are an expert at anything at all, if you're, a, if you're a remake cars, if you're Paul Captain and you're building a truck in your, in your house from scratch, you know, if, Paul and I go in there and I go and ask them questions about the truck. They're going to be elementary. It's like schoolboy and adult, <laughs> right? Because, you know, you can throw out terminologies and numbers and, you know, kinds of technical representations of parts and motors and everything, but yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd go with that too. But the truth is, it's not very long in a conversation with somebody whose expertise is global when, when they, they know, I could teach you, I could mentor you, I could, I could train you, I could enlighten you about things, but we cannot converse on an equal level about this subject. It's not going to happen. God is looking for people he can talk to. I want you to grab this. God's looking for people that he can commune with around things that are important to him. To be able to ascertain, to understand, to treasure values that are presently so completely foreign to us he, he, has, he has no choice but to deal with us as infants. But that is not our lot. That is not what we are locked into. 
he's looking and he's prophesied and he's spoken about it. There's a time coming when the sons and the daughters and the children who are right now under tutors and being trained, but they're going to be raised up and they're coming to a point that he designates maturity. See, I've experienced this to a certain degree. You know, I, uh, uh, I have kids that are grown. Now, they may not be the same as me, you know, in terms of some of the things I know, but what's happened is my ability to enjoy them on an adult level has shifted significantly. You know, that as they become adults, as they come into some of the same experiences, there starts to be an alignment of thought and ideas. You know, I remember, uh, we laugh about this, my, my, my son Matthew, he's got four kids, most of you know him, He's probably watching online, or if not, he should be. <laughs> but, but one day he comes into wedding and he says, he says, why doesn't God like, I mean, why doesn't dad like fun? <laughs> like, you know, what's wrong with dad that he doesn't like fun? <laughs> and so many years later, as a father, It suddenly dawns on him, that moment returns to him where he assumed and accused me of not liking fun. He realized it's not fun. <laughs> that was the issue. Now, granted, some parents may have done a better job of interacting with their kids and, you know, acting as though this was fun. <laughs> I didn't have that great ability. For, for that, you need a Kim Wheeler kind of grandpa. He does that really well, really well. But, but you just, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you can enter into. And the father, he didn't want another class of angel. He didn't want another class of servant being. He wanted something elevated that had never been, that was made in his image, that could re cre re co relate to him in unusual ways. That's what he made us for. And so what's trying to be subverted by the kingdom of darkness is that purpose. And so what the enemy wants you to do to be is an nymph a slave, a tiny little worm-like version, rather than the majesty of what God envisioned what he spoke you into being. And so when you became born again, out of the, uh, out of the miry clay, he, he set you up on a hill and he caused you to be born again. He put a seed inside of you, and that seed is a nature, and it has an understanding, has an intelligence, has capacities beyond what you can imagine. And God is saying, oh, this will be so great when these seeds come to their fullness. That's what God is looking for. But between here and there, for us, <laughs> there are challenges. There are lots of challenges. There's warfare. There's the question of our own desire. Then there's the question of, do we even believe it's possible? I mean, the nature of this lost state that we find ourselves in the 
the construct of the kingdom of darkness trying to suppress that which God has planted is, is such that it takes a while for us to even believe that we can be more than a sinner saved by grace. No, you don't understand. You are meant to be glorious ones, shining beacons of the knowledge of the glory of light, shining like the morning sun in splendor. This is, this is who God imagined you to be because he wants sons that he can relate to and talk. He, he, wants, he wants to talk with you about the beauty of humility and the wonder of wisdom with a way where he's not just teaching you one plus one is two. But he wants to have an adult conversation. Kind of like moms. You know, moms, you're home, you're watching the kids, and you know what? You love those kids, right? They're, they're your flesh and blood. They're wonderful. They're cute. You laugh at them. You play with them. You get, a, you get maybe a, a little frustrated at times. But you know, as much as you love them, and as much as you're a mentor and a teacher and a trainer, at the end of the day, maybe every day, maybe every couple hours, you long for adult conversation. Right? A purple dinosaur does not cut it. And you tire of speaking in that voice. I mean, it's amazing that you can condescend to the level of relating to children and their various levels of maturity, but your longing is. Man, I'm so glad you're home. <laughs> can we talk about something more than trite little, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the things that our kids are preoccupied with. I need intelligent thought, please. I need a vocabulary beyond grade six. But still, the Bible says this, Matthew twenty-two fourteen it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Why? Because God is looking for something. And as much as he loves us all, and as much as there's equal opportunity to come up into this for all of us, because that's the way God has constructed the kingdom of God. He's created opportunities for you to get past whatever's keeping you from becoming a mature son. He has made every provision necessary for you to escape immaturity, escape infancy, and come up into what you were created to be. And in that sense, the world can't stop you. The, the, an immature church can't stop you. The administration of denominations can't stop you. The kingdom of darkness can't stop you. You need to understand this. You need to believe that, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And it's the love of God that brings you up into maturity. It is the life that feeds that nature inside of you to bring you into fullness. And, you know, when Paul wrote about that in Romans, you know, and he said, I'm convinced that nothing can separate me, nothing above, below, nothing uh, past, present can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God is making a statement there and in other places in the scripture. He says, everything necessary for you to come into fullness is already provided. So if you're not there, 
It's not your wife's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's not your particular Bible uh, language, your interpretation's fault. It's all available. So we need to start from that premise that I, I can be a son. I can be one that God longs to talk with because when he talks with me, he gets to express the fullness of what he's thinking about. And that's, that's really what it comes down to, is that there's a fullness of things that God wants to articulate, wants you to share in. I get, I get this all the time. You know, there's lots of people I talk to, and I know right away when I talk to people about spiritual things, profound things, kingdom things, ecclesia things. This is why I love guys like, uh, like Dean Briggs. You know, uh, when, when, when we're together, things get unlocked because he says something and locks something. And I, and I mean, we get to relate in a way that's just so amazing, stimulating, wonderful. But if, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. It's because we understand some of the same premises about the kingdom. We have the same starting point. But think about it. Think about it for yourself. Somebody just told me yesterday. They were trying to talk to somebody who has a basic biblical knowledge, start talking about the scripture, and the person says, I'm not sure if I believe that about the scripture. <laughs> you know? So where do you go from there? Right? How many of you have been with unsaved families over Christmas or over the holidays and you know you're excited about prophetic dance and you go there and it's it's like how about them Oilers? <laughs> I mean you you can find ever other other streams of conversation, but when the thing that you love the thing that your life is centered on that is, that is exhilarating and eternal in, in its consequence, you can't even reference. You're unsatisfied in a way that you can't hardly explain. And your family, your unsaved family, can't understand it. How much more is that the case for God? Burgeoning with thought, creative expansive ideas and nobody that can appreciate the depth of it. So the first thing's first. Let me just say this. And this, this is going to be a bad word if you're out there watching and you're concerned about heresy. Maybe turn the feed off. It's very simple. It can't be. It's, it's actually biblical. You can't even deny it. There is a divine hierarchy. There is less and more in the kingdom of heaven, right? Because many are called, but few are chosen. And the ones that are chosen are going to be qualitatively, by designation and essence, different than the ones who are not chosen. What's the same is opportunity. God is no respecter of persons. What does that mean? That means you're not going to get more of heaven because you're gifted in mechanics, or because you are more beautiful, or because you are taller, praise God. That's right, you tall people. Height in the kingdom of God is not helping. God is an equal, equal opportunity employer. In Christ, there's no longer male or female, Jew or Greek. 
And so there's a level playing field that we have, but how we respond to what is available to us changes the landscape of that level field immediately. And it's, it's obvious, it's obvious throughout the scripture because there are thrones and dominions and not everybody gets a throne and a dominion. Jesus made it very clear again and again and again. One is given one city, one is given five cities, one is given 10 cities. One who's given one city loses that city and it goes to somebody else, right? This is a meritocracy. That means you get you, you get dimensions of authority in the, in the kingdom of heaven for eternity based on what you do with what we all had available to us. Is that clear? Okay. Is that, does that make sense? I, I hope it makes sense. Even with Jesus' ministry, remember there was an inner circle? Was there an inner circle with Jesus? Well, of course there was. There was the twelve. Right? There was others who came along with the 12. There was an entourage. I mean, we talk about the 500. We talk about the 120. We talk about the 12. But within the 12, there was the three. Right? The three. And within the three, there was one. And how was he defined? In his own words. <laughs> he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. What are you saying? Jesus didn't, didn't love me. You know, imagine this, one of the other guys reading this, what are you, right? <laughs> Thomas reading this. Did you see what John wrote? <laughs> no, I, I think it was obvious to them all, <laughs> right? They're lounging at the Last Supper, and there's one who's leaning back on the breast of Jesus. Jesus, tell me secrets. Whisper things in my ears that these other 11 don't get to hear. Right, so God is no respecter of persons. Make sure you're taking in the whole counsel of God when you start to think about how that plays out. So, uh, so there is a meritocracy, there is a spiritual hierarchy, and it's, it's significant. Now, pertaining to the 12, we're introduced to a language that's, that's uh, suggested again by John, John, John 15, 15. This is what he says, John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I made known to you. Now, this, this passage alone is packed with significance, absolutely packed with significance. Now, the designation of friends, let me just say this, it's not universal. You know, we have a tendency, we read a scripture and say, oh, I'm a friend of God because Jesus said this to the 12. Listen, there was more than the 12, but he only said it to the 12. He didn't say it to everybody, and he doesn't say it to everybody today. In the same way, you know, that uh, there, there are just things that are spoken about in the scriptures. Paul, during his experiences, we have the mind of Christ. You read that, you say, yeah, yeah, we have the mind. He wasn't saying we, universal. In fact, the reason he said it was because there was a group of people in the Corinthian church that were clearly operating in mere humanity. 
That's what he said. You're walking like mere men. I can't speak to you as I would to the wise or the mature. I got to talk to you like you're babies. So he was making a distinction. That distinction cannot be ignored. It is a reality. And you could want to deny it. You could you will want to group yourself in with the, the highest order of people within the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we, we all want that, right? But is it true? It, how rare is that designation in Scripture? Well, you know, I know we're all hoping. I hope it's not too rare. <laughs> like, like I, you know, let me tell you, when we're talking billions and billions of souls, I don't know how many are going to land up in heaven, but there's going to be more than a few. There's going to be bottom feeders and top feeders. Get ready for it. There's going to be those that are on the inner circle and there's going to be those on the outskirts. We have time to make it our business to be in the inner circle. We have an invitation to be in the inner circle. Now, there's a couple of passages here that talk about God's um, system of favor and how it differs from person to person. And you have, obviously, an exclusive individual in Ezekiel. I think it's Ezekiel. No, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a pretty, pretty top there. Like, he was a great prophet, right? God spoke to him face to face, had amazing things happen. And at one point, he finds himself interceding for Israel, right? He, he has this close dear, wonderful relationship with God. He's talking with God. And, you know, he's, he's standing in there as this voice to the nation of Israel. And he has a special spot. It's very unique in his day, right? Top dog. Top dog, Jeremiah. Nobody higher than him in intimacy in that era. Maybe. We don't know for sure. There's no list. But he's interceding for Israel, and God says to him, Stop. Stop praying for these people. Oh, really? Okay. Listen to this. Jeremiah 15.1. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Right? I mean, Jer Jeremiah, I like you. And you got a lot of pull with me. But even if Samuel were here, what do you mean? You like Samuel better? You like Moses better? Yeah, evidently. They would, have, they would have more pull than you. That's what God is saying to him. Why? Because we don't all have the same pull. Do we know this? Are we comfortable with this? Are we accepting of this? Well, you, you can accept the reality of it, but you don't have to accept the limitations of it. You've been invited. You've been invited. I was thinking about this, like what, what is it that, what are the steps? Like when I think about my life and all the decisions that were made, and of course I'm always thinking of the moments I was obedient. This is me, Mark. I'm thinking about the moments that I was obedient. It's kind of like what I, how I used to picture myself playing hockey. 
After a hockey game, I only remembered the things I did well. That's what kept me in good standing with my own heart. <laughs> that's, well, that's what made me feeling I, I deserved to be on the all-star team. Because all I remember is the pinnacle moments. And a lot of us have a tendency to do, do that, not all of us. Right, Ben? But we, we, we have that tendency, but it doesn't change the reality. And so I was thinking about this, I was thinking about as an example, it's a pretty raw example, but remember Naaman, the Syrian general? He's coming, he's got leprosy, and he, he's wanting the favor of God, and he, he gets this special access to the prophet. But here's the problem. He's got a whole mindset of privilege. He's got a whole mindset of entitlement. I mean, he's, he's the right-hand guy of the, the Syrian king, you know? He's a, he's a big deal where he comes from. You know, he's, he's a really big deal. And so he comes there, prophet doesn't even come out, and says to him, go wash in the dirtiest river we, we have. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's offended on so many levels, right? And he's, he's like, doesn't he know who I am? I mean, at least he could come out and face me. And why this river? So objection, objection, objection. He's wanting something, but his bent, his default is, I don't agree with how this is going. I don't like this. There are better rivers over here. Again, all the criteria of things are immaterial because... God is offering him something, but the hoops he has to draw through, are, walk through, are not about his entitlement. They're actually counter, they're abrasive to those things. In other words, you can have this, but you have to align with me. And that in a nutshell is what God is demanding. And it, you know, Thankfully, he had some servants. Hey, Naaman, like, you're getting this a little out of perspective. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you, okay, you can hold on to, I don't want to lay down in muddy water. I, I want to be nurtured. I want to be respected. I want my pedigree to be acknowledged. Is that really the best, the most important thing right here? Why is this important for us to think about? Because the question is, how many times have decisions like that determined our proximity to God? How many times do we choose something, some criteria, some significant thing about how we think God should do this? Well, if it were God, I mean, I remember hearing this at one point. There was a revival going on in Toronto, and somebody was, and you know, I was excited about it, but the Lord wouldn't let me go. I wanted to go to Toronto, but he wouldn't let me go. I'm talking to somebody, and I said, well, have you been to, have you been to this thing? He said, well, no, because, you know, if God wanted to do that to me, he could do it right here. All right, that's what you call on the outside looking in. But you go ahead, you hold on to that. You stubbornly decide that, you know, I'm God in this place. I'll decide how God should move. No, no, no. We align to God. Let me, let, me, let me just give you a hint here. 
God has constructed challenges for you. And every one of those challenges is an opportunity to lay down what you think, how you would do it, and choose his way. And we don't seem to have that absolute resignation to you are God. We keep coming to the table with some kind of bizarre orientation around our preferences. And suddenly that overwhelms with us with a sense of importance. We really believe that we're right. You know who didn't have that? The Apostle John. The reason why the Apostle John was, was so dear to Jesus is because he aligned. He had this innate sense of, I want to go where the life is. And when Jesus spoke, he said, well, I don't understand this, but that's life. Jesus says to them, my words are spirit and they are life. They may look wrong to you, but they are right. They, I may phrase things in imperfect manner according to your theology or your outlook on the world, but my words are more correct than you can imagine. And you just won't understand that till later once you begin to comprehend why I said it the way I said it. But I said it that way to give you an opportunity to lay something down. And you know, we can go through life deciding that, well, I'm not going to that church anymore. Well, that, you know, that church, the, the way they park their cars, I mean, that's just insanity. It's absurd. And you know, why would they pave half of the back? Who does that? And you know, why, why, should, why couldn't this be like this? And, why could, and so we allow ourselves, our preferences, how we think the, 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 uh, the foyer should be set up, whether we have the right coffee, whether we've been greeted sufficiently, whether, well, yeah, all of these things determine our proximity to the saints, the body of Christ, and everybody else, and we feel justified in doing so. And then we wonder, well, why, why don't I have more pull with God? Because there can only be one. And he's calling us to worship him, to pursue him, to start every conversation with the premise, you are right, God. Oh, but you know how that, when you're with somebody who's often right, you're like, you just, I just like one moment when they're wrong. <laughs> that Jim Donato, he just knows so much. <laughs> just wish I could beat him once. You know, you may, it's funny when you think about those circumstances. We actually take that equation into our relationship with God. We don't even know we do it. And God is saying, listen, oh man, if you, if you only knew what I've invited you into. If you only knew what was possible. If you only knew the genius thoughts I have that I'm waiting to share with you, but I try to talk to you about it, and, you're already, and as soon as I start to talk about it, you're like, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I can trust you. I'm not sure I like this. All right, then. One day you'll be desperate enough, hopefully, to resign that thing. One day you'll be overwhelmed with a desire to want to be my friend. One day you'll realize what I have to offer. 
And you realize, oh, what was I holding on to? Father, I pray right now. Let's stand up together. Father, I pray right now. Holy Spirit, overshadow our minds and our hearts. Overshadow the strongholds of our emotions we don't even know we have. Lord, the things, the meticulous defaults in our settings that we don't even know we have that cause us to distance ourselves from the things that would set us free. Oh, God. God, we want to be your friend. Oh, to be the friend of God. Oh, to be the friend of God. Father, we desire this elusive and rare designation. But, Father, we want to make the most of every opportunity. And we pray, help me. Can you say that? Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me see the moments when I'm losing something that is so precious and so beautiful because of my preferences. Father, I want to align with you. I want to align with you. Father, thank you, Lord, for this rare, beautiful, exclusive opportunity. Lord, if there was ever an exclusive offer, it is the one that you've given us, every single one of us. So, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, your grace, amen.